Welcome to 340B Insight from 340B Health. Hello from Washington, D.C., and welcome back to 340B Insight, the podcast about the 340B drug pricing program. I'm David Glendinning with 340B Health. This episode is sponsored by Century Data Systems. Since 2003, Century has been providing healthcare organizations with 340B management and compliance solutions that help you make better business decisions. They bring you more than just software solutions and technology. They deliver passion, expertise, and partnership every step of the way. Our guest today is Dr. Jewel Young, a clinical assistant professor at University of Illinois Chicago College of Pharmacy and a clinical pharmacist at University of Illinois Hospital and Health Sciences System. She was one of the featured speakers during last month's 340B Coalition Summer Conference on a panel about how covered entities can help address our nation's healthcare disparities among communities of color. But before we go to that interview, let's take a minute for a roundup of 340B news stories that were at the center of many conference conversations. The 340B program was in the national spotlight recently at a White House event during which President Trump signed several executive orders with the stated goals of reducing prescription drug prices. One of those orders would require federally qualified health centers to sell insulin and EpiPens at their 340B discounted prices to certain people with low incomes. It is important to note that executive orders such as these do not have the effect of law until after a federal rulemaking process and any policy changes must fit within existing federal laws. Find out more in the show notes for this episode. On Capitol Hill, Representatives Doris Matsui, a Democrat from California, and Chris Stewart, a Republican from Utah, have introduced legislation to protect 340B hospitals during the COVID-19 pandemic. Like bipartisan legislation already introduced in the Senate, this bill would prevent hospitals from losing program eligibility because of changes in patient mix during the pandemic. The House bill also would ensure that hospitals can obtain needed medications at 340B prices through group purchasing organizations when drug shortages occur during the public health emergency. And 340B Health has new research demonstrating how important 340B hospitals are to serving Medicaid patients and low-income Medicare patients. One of the more striking figures shows that 340B DISH hospitals provide 75% of Medicaid hospital services, despite making up only 43% of all acute care hospitals. You can read the full report and see a helpful infographic in the show notes for this episode. Today's featured interview is with Dr. Jewel Young, our own Richard Sorian moderated the 340B Coalition Summer Conference panel on healthcare inequalities, and he sat down with Jewel following her presentation to speak more about this important topic and where 340B fits in. Let's listen to that conversation. Thank you, David. I'm here with Jewel Young. Jewel is a clinical pharmacist at UI Health in Chicago and a clinical assistant professor of pharmacy at the University of Illinois Chicago College of Pharmacy. At the 340B Coalition Summer Conference, Jewel was one of the expert panelists discussing inequities in healthcare during the COVID-19 pandemic. Her presentation was so compelling, 
we just had to ask her to join us as a guest on 340B Insight. Welcome, Jewel. Thank you. Thank you very much. Your path to becoming a pharmacist is a bit untraditional. Can you share with us how you became a pharmacist and why? Yes. When I decided to become a pharmacist, I was actually the chair of the Visual and Performing Arts Department at Olive Harvey College and an English and Humanities teacher. And I really enjoyed that job. And it was everything I wanted to do when I graduated from college. And I had done it already. (laughs) So I was looking around for ways to continue to learn new things and expand my approach to the world. And I really became inspired by my own students at Olive Harvey College because they would come as mid-career professionals. And I thought, if they can do it, I can do it. And my colleagues were really encouraging and they encouraged me to take their classes, which of course benefited them because they always needed students. And I enjoyed taking classes and I found I had a real strength for chemistry. And by the time I finished them, I had earned enough prerequisites to become a nurse. And that was my initial goal. I had one last hurdle, which was anatomy, where we were to cut up a cat. (laughs) And uh, the social justice organizer in me organized a protest. (laughs) We did not cut up a cat. My beloved colleague, Dr. Ali, was very angry at me, (laughs) but it taught me that to be a nurse, to treat people's wounds, that requires a grace that I do not have. Pharmacy is a lot about teaching and talking to people. So even though I enjoy chemistry, I really have kind of returned to my old trade and teaching and talking to people, which is something that I have a natural gift for, I think. That's fascinating. What about being a pharmacist do you most enjoy? Oh, I love complicated people problems. So my undergraduate degree is in theater, and then I have a master's degree in the humanities from the University of Chicago. So I really study philosophy at the core of my training. And ever since then, I just find the things that people do that hurt them or help them alternately are so interesting. And if there's a way to intervene in that thinking and help people think differently about their own problems, it satisfies like a sort of like puzzle maker instinct in me. Can you tell us a little bit about UI Health and the communities you serve? Yes. UI Health serves really the breadth of Chicago and Chicagoland. And it is one of the providers of last resort in the city. So everywhere in the city, there are people who have need dispersed throughout all of the communities. So a lot of them trust UI Health because UI Health is known to have a strong standard of health. We have an excellent stroke center and because stroke is such a high risk in a lot of communities of color or communities that are limited by class limitations, a lot of them come to UI Health and receive excellent care. That's something I'm very proud of. But the 340B program allows us to do a lot of amazing service through the pharmacy. For instance, the medication assistance program, that's a program whose staff I work very closely with. And they give out thousands of dollars of transplant medications, insulin, diabetes medications every day, and even on Saturday. (laughs) 
and the Miles Square Health Centers. Not only are they excellent health centers, when I was a student at University of Chicago, I went to Miles Square Health Center as a patient. I never knew I would work for Miles Square. So UI Health has both hospitals and uh, health centers. Is that correct? Yes, we have the hospital. We have clinics. We have Miles Square Health Clinics that are spread throughout the city. So the COVID-19 pandemic has really illuminated the stark disparities in health for many Americans, especially those who are black or brown. You've been conducting research on this issue. What's been happening in Chicago? I spent some time this morning looking at some trends from the Chicago data. I can tell you as of today, our cases are generally down. We're not at the nadir of where we were. That really occurred around March, or I'm sorry, May 31st. But since then, there's been slow increases. The highest rate of positivity is in the Latinx community. And that positivity rate as of this morning is 9.5%. And the Black community is 6.7%. And the Asian community, 3.3%. And then the white community, 3.2%, but the overall number is 4.9%, which is under 5%. So even though things are going in the right direction in general, obviously for Black and Latinx communities, positive rate is over the 5% threshold. Now, death is still higher and has always been as high or narrowly higher in the Black community than any other community. So right now, death in the Black community stands at 1,171 people. This is just for Chicago versus 884 people in the Latinx community. Increased death rates also relates to the age of the community in the city of Chicago. And people who know the city of Chicago know that that does have a lot to do with the history of housing and housing discrimination. Because a lot of people who live in the Black community in Chicago are older because for a period of time, it was very hard for younger people to qualify for the subsidized housing in the city. I remember this when I was a teacher. And so I'm not surprised to see that some communities just have an older population. And in the older population right now, we see a way lower positivity rate because older people are not leaving the house. (laughs) They are staying at home. They don't have to be told twice, but really frequently they raise their grandchildren or they raise their children. So I'm not surprised to see, unfortunately, 921 people over the age of 80 have died, but they have a 3.4% positivity rate, 60 to 69, 598. But that group concerns me because 60 to 69, that's a group of people who are very likely to be raising grandchildren. And so not that the grandchildren bear this risk that they should internalize, oh, I've made my grandmother sick. That's the position that we keep putting them in. But the reality is if you're raising grandchildren, you're going to the grocery store, you're trying to find ways to entertain them, you're focused on their health at a time when you need to focus on your health. So that's the kind of domino effect that results in COVID-19 increasing pre-existing health disparities. In your presentation to the 340B Coalition Summer Conference, you talked about some of the myths around COVID-19 and communities of color. Can you talk a little bit about those myths? I can, and I'm happy to talk about them because I believe that those myths 
are, of course, present in communities of color, but I think they're in present in any community where there is distance between the patient or the individual and the healthcare system. And that could be a lot of different places. But one of the central myths is this, uh, just central lack of trust over what the outcomes could be if I enter the healthcare system. Could there be a huge bill attached to this? And could that bill be worse for me than the problem that I have? Could I be misunderstood or mistreated or made to feel so bad that I prefer to suffer at home? <laughs> could I be reported to someone for having had this healthcare condition? And could the consequences of that hurt not only me, but maybe my family? or maybe my neighbors or someone in my community? Are, am I being experimented on? Is this a strategy for government overreach? These are not myths that just exist in black and brown communities. These are the same things that we hear in a lot of communities where people refuse to wear masks or are afraid of being tested, getting the vaccine or being involved with this novel healthcare situation. It's totally understandable, especially in this moment, but I think it's an opportunity as well, because when everyone's trust is destabilized, then we all have to pay attention to trust building. So it's an opportunity because some of the myths are myths that we as healthcare providers have contributed to, a huge one. It's safer to be at home than to go to the hospital. Well, now the CDC and the American Heart Association are working very hard to reverse people's thinking on that. But maybe if you're in a hot spot and your issue is treatable at home, that's still true. What we have to think less about is what is this particular myth and where is the trust? Where is the trust between the healthcare system and the person who needs it? And right now, when we depend on each other, the absolute most is the opportunity to cast aside those those grievances that have we have to weigh over a longer course of time and work immediately towards building trust so that we can resolve the acute situation right now you talk about multi-generational households and and some of the the challenges they face but having multiple generations in a household what advantages might they have how can they help each other both in education and in helping them stay healthy I think that a multi-generational household is protective for a lot of reasons, and that's why so many of them exist, because it's protective for the older adult who may live there, who may be of the first generation, and then they're another, they're another resource, they're a source of wisdom, they're a source of encouragement. If there's a positive dynamic in the house, all of those things are true. There are working age people in the house, so there's an opportunity for the house to recover if one income is lost. So there's opportunity to pool resources. And then I think it's really important right now that people have people to hug and kiss and love and people who they know they are safe to interact with and people who they can share their trust with. Disparities in healthcare are not new. We've been talking about them for a long time, but progress has been very slow. Do you think that somehow COVID-19 and the death of George Floyd are affecting the conversation about equity 
Do you think they can lead to real action? Well, George Floyd, his case is so important because George Floyd was buried on the same day as my cousin, Virtus Wilson. He was 92 years old. He's probably one of the most famous men in the history of East St. Louis. And 10 people were allowed to view his his burial. So George Floyd's burial was our funeral for Virtus. But in a way, I believe it gave everyone an opportunity to externalize a lot of fear and grief and trauma. And that's what brought so many people out of their homes at a time when they were already spilling out. When he died, people from everywhere came out and said, this was my friend. So he was so much in every man that I hope that George Floyd's death, but also the death of John Lewis, someone who we can look to as a person to guide our empathy towards action will help us guide the way we adapt to a situation over which we really have to accept that we have limited control. Let me talk to you a little bit about 340B. How does 340B help support the work that you do and the work that your health system is doing to address and focus on disparities? Well, the 340B program has really not only allowed for cost savings on our end, but it allows for us to create cost savings for other programs. So we really are able to multiply the value of those savings. Some of the sort of hard statistics about how we use it. So 38.5% of disproportionate share hospital that's the proportion of patients we serve who have Medicaid or uninsured. And about $27.1 million of uncompensated care is provided. And we spend about $52.4 million on drugs for patients through 340B pricing, which means we save $19.5 million a year from 340B. So then we recycle that. million. So in fiscal year 19, the specialty pharmacy conducted over 5,000 clinical assessments and over 2,500 pharmacist interventions. The medication assistance program that I was talking about earlier, FY19, they provided $4 million of medication assistance. 3,600 patients were assisted. And I can tell you, I know personally that many of those patients are transplant patients. Many of those patients are coming to the pharmacy on Saturday with their last anti-rejection pill in their hand. Just remarkable work that you and your colleagues do. My last question is, think about other pharmacists around the country like you. What would you advise them that they could do to address some of these broader problems in our society and in healthcare? Well, the first thing I would tell pharmacists like me is to be encouraged because you can make small actions within your home or your church or your store or your your workplace that have dramatic effects because everyone you work with will affect someone else who will affect someone else. So the breadth of your reach is great. It's greater than you may be aware. People may not trust the store where I work, but they trust me. 
And if I'm speaking on behalf of the store, maybe they'll doubt it. But if they trust me and they trust that I have their best interest at heart, and I say, Miss Johnson, I would go get tested if I were you because those symptoms are concerning, there's a likelihood now, Miss Johnson doesn't always do what I say, but <laughs> the likelihood that she will is way higher than if she hears it on the news. I think the hardest part is having the courage and knowing that all of the work will be for a good that outweighs that work. But I guess that's really what 340B is really all about, right? Taking a small benefit and turning it into a massive reward for as many people as possible. It's so clear that you really love the work you do. I do. I really do. <laughs> well, thank you, Jewel. Thank you for joining us on 340B Insight. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Oh, it's been my privilege and my honor. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Our thanks again to Dr. Jewel Young for speaking with us and participating in the 340B Coalition Summer Conference. Closing the patient care gaps that perpetuate healthcare disparities in the U.S. will require input and action from safety net providers. And we are glad that there are leaders such as Jewel who are helping point the way toward progress. If you registered for the conference but missed the Healthcare Disparities panel, you can still access the presentation on demand, and we encourage you to do so. More information about on-demand sessions is available at 340bsummerconference.org. Do you have a question about 340B or a program issue you would like us to cover on a future episode of the podcast? Please email us at podcast at 340bhealth.org. We'll be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks, focusing on some recent major 340B actions by the federal government and drug manufacturers. Until then, thanks for listening and be well. Thanks for listening to 340B Insight. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, visit our website at 340bpodcast.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at 340B Health and submit a question or idea to the show by emailing us at podcast at 340bhealth.org.